Well, as you're finding your way back to your seats, let's turn together to Acts chapter 6. It's also printed for you there in the bulletin on page 9. And again, having just seen the ordination and installation of new officers and in so doing, considering and hearing some Old Testament reminders taken from Exodus, we want to turn our attention to a New Testament passage, again, Acts chapter 6, and just read verses 1 through 7 together. hear these words. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. Again, on a day like today where we have installed our additional elders and deacons, it's a great opportunity for us to look at the biblical basis for what we celebrate. As I mentioned, the Apostle Paul writes in his pastoral letters, again, thinking of his letters to Timothy and Titus, and he speaks to these specific offices. And again, I would encourage you to go back and look at those passages if you haven't in quite some time to get a fuller detail, again, of the character and the qualifications of those things. But even what the Apostle Paul details and elaborates, if you think about it, traces its roots to this passage here, to this historical account that we have in Acts 6. Again, the doctrine that Paul draws or defines or articulates more fully ultimately finds itself a historical root previously. And of course, the book of Acts is what gives us many of those things, as the book of Acts is our history of the earliest church. We looked at, in fact, the book of Acts a couple of years ago in a sermon series, but if you remember, again, it's the time immediately following Christ's ascension, and it's the beginning of what's known as the apostolic age, as you have apostolic leadership there in the earliest of church. Well, again, it's here in passages like this, that we don't just see and hear instruction or we don't just get doctrinal teaching, like again, we might in the epistles of Paul, but we see the firsthand historical accounts, which again, inform the teaching 
or the fuller doctrine which Paul, or, or even Peter at times, will articulate later in their letters. And so here, in this account of Acts chapter 6 and the events that it describes, it stands here, again, these two offices. It presents to us the need for these two offices, namely that of elder and deacon, to begin to formulate. And we see here in sort of embryonic form these two roles as they come to be in the life of the church. And so it is that Acts reminds us, again, that what began as a movement and a message, what began in the early chapters of Acts as this apostolic announcement of the Messiah, the apostolic preaching of, of Christ and his salvation, well, over time, it becomes a full-fledged organization. It becomes even an institution. We kind of have, you know, we kind of have mixed feelings about that word, but in its proper category, in its proper expression, that's a good thing. It matures, again, from a message and a movement into an institution, into an organization, into an assembly. It's that Greek word, as you know, ekklesia, where we get the word church. This idea of an assembly gathered. If you think about it, this is natural when one begins to consider the numbers that are mentioned in the book of Acts. If you were to take your Bible and go back and look in Acts chapter 4, we get sort of the first statistic, if you will. You know, before the Barna group came along and places like that where we get our church statistics, right? We get our first one here in Acts 4, uh, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word of God believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Well, in response, again, to the preaching of, of Peter, we're told about 5,000 men are saved. But, but added to that number, as we know, have to be the households, the families, the women, and the children. And again, those who are then saved since then, between Acts 4 and Acts 6, so by the time you get to say uh, Acts chapter 5, look at verse uh, 14, I think it is. Yeah, 14. Acts 5, 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So that again, by the time you get to chapter 5 and to chapter 6, the 5,000 men who were mentioned, again, now must include Family members who have become saved, wives and children. Then you have verse 14 of chapter 5. So by the time you get to chapter 6, you're probably looking at a congregation, an assembly of 15,000, maybe 20,000, some biblical scholars estimate, who are now gathered again under the name of Christ. If you think about it, this is, you know, this is a mega church before Rick Warren, okay? This is, you know, before their saddleback, there's... Acts 6, all right? I mean, this is megachurches, again, said in a good way, megachurches before there's megachurches. I mean, think about the number of people we're now thinking about when we think of the, the earliest community here in the book of Acts. But one of the first things we notice is that no matter how the church is expressed, whether it's here in the beginning, whether it's organically, whether it's more formalized and institutionally, whether it's structured or not, whether it's in homes, as we know the earliest of churches began, or whether it's in 
beautiful cathedrals with stained glass. Wherever we find ourselves on the church spectrum, we get the reminder here right away that the church has never been perfect. The church has never been perfect. The church is always full of sinners, right? (laughs) Who here is a sinner? Raise your hand. Everybody should raise their hand, right? (laughs) Not again, boastfully, don't get me wrong, but honestly, right? The church has never been perfect. It's always been full of sinners. It's that hospital, hopefully, which opens its arms wide to the broken, to the needy. And so by nature, then, this organization we call church won't be perfect because it's full of those who are struggling. We saw that before in our study of Acts. We saw it even more emphatically in our very first uh, sermon series together, when I first was called here in 1 Corinthians. You see that very vividly, that the church has never been perfect, right? But again, we see here then that it's never long until we're tempted to make church about us. We're tempted easily to lose sight of the main thing, and we have to combat worldly priorities in favor of gospel ones, and we see that here even in the earliest of churches. If you notice, Acts 6 is an early example of the worldly inclinations that we can bring into the church Namely, here, things like favoritism or partiality, racism even, corruption. Again, things which can creep into the practice of the church, and we're beginning to creep, if you think about it, even here into the earliest of church, and if left unchecked, would ultimately undermine the work of the gospel, and would ultimately undermine the work of the congregation. And this specific Uh, area that we see it beginning to creep into, as you noticed, is the daily distribution of food to the widows of the congregation. Again, think about verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose. Well, who are they? Well, the Hellenists are Jews who are Greek-speaking. Jews who have mostly settled outside of Palestine and in so doing have absorbed certain elements of Greek culture, particularly Greek language. They would use the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures. And many of them here probably had traveled into Jerusalem for Passover. They hear the apostolic preaching. They see the Spirit distributed, right? They themselves are saved and converted, and many of them stay. They stay there in Jerusalem, And what happens here is that though we are called to be one in Christ, there is is therefore now no more Jew or Greek, right? Male or female, slave or free, Paul says in his letters. Well, here we're called to be one in Christ, but the Hellenists soon discover that there is this prejudice which exists against them and their families by the native Palestinian Jews who still speak Hebrew, who still read the Hebrew scriptures, who still worship in the local synagogues, who in a sense, if you will, never quote-unquote sold out to the surrounding culture, never sold out, again in quotes, to the Greek culture which surrounds them. And so this prejudice begins to arise, this favoritism, this racism even begins to arise as the widows of 
the Hellenists, are being overlooked. Are being overlooked in the regular benevolence, which, as you might also know, is a very large and important part of Hebrew life. Caring for your extended family. Caring and honoring your father and your mother. Again, this is very strictly taught, very strictly encouraged. If you remember, if you go back to even Acts chapter 2, this is a time where now all of these families are together again in the church. And they're supposed to be sharing everything without measure. And and, and again, um, unified in meeting one another's needs. However, in this situation, favorites are being played. Some are being marginalized. And it's happening to such an extent that it rises to the level of the apostles' attention. And that should convict even us. That should convict even us, for this might sound or feel familiar. Have you ever been a part of a church where favorites have been played? Have you yourself ever been tempted towards making church about you or or your priorities or the kind of person you are versus the kind of person your neighbor might be or us and, and them? And again, it's easy for this to take over. It's easy for this corruption to, to creep in. Unfortunately, all of us have at some time probably been a part of a Christian community where we can see that happen. Perhaps some of us are guilty of that very thing ourselves. And again, we repent. We do our best to overcome that struggle. However, in a strange way, there is this maybe, I don't know, consolation that it's been a struggle from the beginning. And even the earliest of church, how long did it take to get here? We're six chapters in. <laughs> Think about how the Bible begins. Three chapters in, right? And you have the fall of man. <laughs> the garden is opened and boom, fall of man. The church here is opened, and boom. It's all of a sudden being hijacked by worldly principles and priorities. Again, in a strange way, there's actually consolation. There's never been a perfect church, this one included. There's no such thing as Mayberry Presbyterian Church, right? (laughs) You can't go back to the good old days. You can't even go back to the New Testament church and find a perfect church. For again, we're reminded even here that it's always a struggle and we must be vigilant. That Christians have never been perfect That's why we need a savior. Isn't that right? It's also a reminder that we don't worship the church. We don't worship the institution, the the building, the place, the locality, the pastor, the officers, the worship leader. We don't worship the church, but we worship the Christ who stands behind that church. We worship the Christ whom hopefully the church faithfully preaches and presents again we worship the Christ of Christianity and not the religion itself or its institutions and so the issue we see here in Acts 6 and the issue that we are called to protect against at all times is this issue of division division along worldly lines division along secondary things division in the ranks that compromise our witness And notice here how the Lord combats that inclination towards division by giving us a tool. 
And the tool that he provides here, again, against division, is this healthy division of labor. Notice that. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice, again, as a direct result of the church growing, which is always a good thing, and a direct result of a membership now forming around the message, polity is now required. Procedures are now required. Policy, offices, that's true of any community. You know, people often get hung up in the church today on things like denominations, or they get hung up on things like church government. They get hung up even on things like official you know, statements of doctrine or, or creeds or books of church order. Can certain things get off base? Of course. Have denominations and church government strayed at times or, or been exploited? Of course. They're also imperfect, as we know. Are the things I just mentioned ultimately on the same level of Scripture? No, they are not. Books of church order, doctrinal statements that we develop, those are not inerrant things like the word of God. They can get off base, of course. But on the flip side, the question is often asked, well, can't we all just get along and love Jesus? Can't we all just get together? Why do we need denominations? Why do we need books of church order? Can't we just get along and, and worship Jesus and love Jesus? And the answer is, yeah, we could if we lived in a perfect world. But we don't. But we don't. If we lived in a perfect church, but there isn't one. And if you found one, don't go to it because you'll ruin it, right? <laughs> I'll ruin it, okay? And so again, Acts 6 reminds us this need to form policies and procedures and to develop offices. These are good and wise gifts that the Spirit enabled those men to develop and they are always good and wise if they are in submission to Scripture. That's the key. We can't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because sometimes those offices are mismanaged or doctrinal statements are, are not followed. Again, those are good things if they remain submissive to Scripture. And the policy then that we see formed here, again, in response to this issue of division, is for the apostles, again, another good thing here, another wise thing, is for the apostles to realize that they can't do it all. Even Peter. Think about Peter for a second. This thundering preacher of God's word, part of the inner circle of Christ, a man who, when he preached, over 5,000 men were converted. A man who they were taking handkerchiefs from, Right to bring to the sick. They wanted to, they wanted to walk in Peter's shadow and find healing. Even Peter, even Peter and his fellow apostles realize they can't do it all. They can't do it all. Because the church is growing, more of their authority is now required, which is a great thing, but now it means the job description is also growing. It's now not just preaching and healing, but it's congregational care. It's not just a message, but now there are members. They can't do it all, and so what should they do? Well, they make it clear here, they will continue to focus on their primary call. 
the main thing they're called to do, which is, again, to lead, to take the lead in preaching God's word, to take the lead in spiritual governance. But others now, namely deacons, and we see Stephen as the first, will now take the lead with things like congregational care, with things like caring for the physical needs of the church. And again, this is where we see in story form here what we have celebrated and still see today. That the office of elder, if you think about it, is downstream from the office of apostle. Now, don't mishear that, okay? We are not on the level of apostles, nor will we ever be, nor is anyone ever on the level of apostles, right? The, the apostolic office was a once and for all unique gift. There were 13 of them, right? If you count Judas originally, who we know doesn't remain. Matthias replaces him, okay? 14, if you count Paul, okay? The apostle untimely born, as he calls himself, right? But these were men, again, in a unique place, in a unique time, given unique gifts and call. We are not apostles today. That was a one-time special office, but the office of elder, if you think about it, has a job today that is derivative of that original office of apostle, to be focused primarily on the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's where a teaching elder comes in. And then to focus primarily on the spiritual governance of the church. That's where our ruling elders come in. Again, Frank is our newest ruling elder. Okay? We are derivative of that original apostolic office. That's where we get our primary marching orders from, if you will. Well, likewise, the office of deacon is downstream and derivative from this account of that early group of Stephen and others. And their job today, and think of the men who stood before you today, have a similar job description, to care for the congregation and its physical needs as a complement and a fuller expression of the care of God's church alongside elders. Now, does this mean that one office is better than the other? No. No. Is there one partner in the marriage better than the other? Don't answer that, okay? <laughs> Don't get yourself in trouble today, all right? Of course not. Of course not. The roles are complementary. There is not one better or above the other. Well, again, so it is true here. The elder is concerned with ministry of the word primarily. The deacon is concerned with ministry of deed. And both are necessary in a healthy church. Does this mean your pastor is above waiting tables? Was that Peter's point? Of course not. You should be delighted to know that I have served in both fine dining restaurants and Chick-fil-A, okay? When I was in college, I worked in both, all right? I like Chick-fil-A a lot more, not going to lie. The fine dining was way too much pressure, okay? No, of course not. We're not above things like waiting on tables. Does this mean our deacons cannot teach or lead a Bible study? Can't speak in service? Of course not. These roles, as you see, speak to primary areas of responsibility, but not exclusive areas of responsibility. And so we see here this healthy division of labor. And then notice, as we draw things towards a close, notice the fruit that it bears in the church. Verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and then the others mentioned 
And look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, notice when we are um, in compliance with the word of God. Notice when we are faithful to follow the Spirit's leading and to put in good order Again, the things of God's house, like they are doing here as it first was being built. Notice what it can produce. Notice what it tends to produce. You see, this is the ultimate goal of any church polity. We don't put together offices. We don't write books of church order because we love theological bureaucracy, right? Or red tape. No, no, no. Things like church polity and government and structure are put in place, not for spiritual bureaucracy, but ultimately for spiritual flourishing. For flourishing. And that's what you see here in in Acts 6. Again, the apostles don't create spiritual red tape or spiritual middle management. Instead, they're humble enough to recognize. That's what I spoke to a moment ago when we read from Exodus and They were humble enough to realize they can't do it on their own. That no church is designed to revolve around one person or personality, but it takes the whole body of Christ. It takes the hands and the feet of Christ, and at times it takes some who rise to the level of official office. That again, the word of God might go forth in greater power. The word of God might go forth in greater efficiency even, that the care of his people only increases, that the number of disciples is multiplied. Well, that was their prayer then, and that's our prayer today. But then finally, you might be thinking, okay, well, what if I'm not called right now to a specific church office? I, I, I didn't stand up there. I haven't been nominated or, or elected. Well, what role do we play And again, that's what we're grateful when you think about this in the larger context of Scripture. Because Acts 6 is Acts 6. But what happened in Acts 2? Pentecost, remember? And what was given at Pentecost? The Spirit. The Spirit was given without measure. And the Spirit was given ultimately to all. To all who proclaim the name of Christ. To all who believe in Christ as Savior, which means we all have a role to play. We all have gifts to use in service to God's church. And Paul puts it very eloquently in the letter of Ephesians. So if you want, you can turn there. If not, I'll just read it for you. But in Ephesians 4, he says this, verse 4. I'm just going to hop around there, so don't feel the need to follow it to the T. But verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, as you recall, to the one hope that belongs to your call. This is talking to everybody, not just elders and deacons. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then look at verse 10. I'm sorry, look at verse 11. 
And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And they go down to verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. Again, this is all of us. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, that it builds itself up in love. You see, we all have a role to play. There are, again, some this morning who were singled out for the role of a specific office, but the larger office of saint, if you will, the larger office of, of Christian, the larger office of a member of his body includes all of us. And all of us have been equipped with the Holy Spirit, the great gift given to us, the great dispersion of Christ's conquering treasure to us, his redeemed people, is the gift of his spirit that we might now walk in faithfulness after him and we might use the measure of the gift that he's given to us to serve his church, to serve his body, that again, the gospel would go forth in greater power and men and women and children would be saved, would be saved and called into the redeemed community, just like we see here in Acts 6. May that be true of us also here at Lake Osborne. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the church that you have been actively building from before the foundation of the world because of Christ. Thank you for our part in it. Thank you for our inclusion in it because of your mercy. God, would you help all of us to serve in whatever capacity you have called us to serve, with whatever gifts that you have equipped us with. Again, all for your glory and all for the advancement of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.